All right, turn with me to the book of Jonah, if you have a Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, we'd love to have one in front of you, whether you have that, you can get out your phone and uh, open up an app or something like that, but we also have um, Bibles on either side of the room that you're welcome to borrow this morning or keep for yourself. Uh, the Word of God is, is absolutely vital to our life in Christ, and so we want to make sure that you have that. You can see what we're talking about. You can read along with us. You can investigate that for yourself and, again, with others uh, so that you don't take my word, but you take the Lord's word for what it is. It's the truth. It's the truth of God. Um, We're going to be in Jonah chapter 3 this morning. You can find that on page 822 uh, if you are using one of those Bibles. We uh, we just finished uh, chapter 2 last week. Again, Jonah's broken up into four chapters, two sort of major episodes, two halves to the book, right? Uh, and, and the first half, chapters one and two, made up this first uh, major episode. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach against it because the, the evil of the people of Nineveh came up before the Lord. And Jonah disobeyed, and he fled to the, in the opposite direction, away from Nineveh, and uh, away, it says, from the presence of the Lord, but we all know that that's impossible to do, and God showed that by, uh, by pursuing Jonah with his sovereign grace and causing Jonah to, to be thrown overboard of the ship into the stormy sea and swallowed up by a huge fish, which then we saw last week vomited Jonah out onto dry land after three days and three nights. Well, now we're in chapter three, and chapter three begins this second major episode in the book, and it parallels the first episode in a lot of ways, and that parallelism helps emphasize the main point of the whole book that we're, we're coming to understand. It's this, that God loves his enemies and pours out his sovereign grace on undeserving sinners of all kinds. Psalm 103, right? He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Make no mistake, God is holy, and he will punish his enemies. Anyone who continues in rebellion against him He will punish them. That is righteous and good and holy. But this is beautiful. We're going to see this morning that God is a God who in his holiness, in his righteousness, extends his grace to his enemies in love and draws them to himself. Nineveh was mentioned at the beginning of chapter 1, but then it sort of fell into the background as uh, Jonah ran away from God. Uh, and, and, but now for the rest of the book, Nineveh is going to be this backdrop to this episode that unfolds, and the Ninevites themselves will play a key role in helping us understand what Jonah still uh, has yet to understand. And here in chapter 3, everyone in this account is responding to someone else. I want us to see that this morning. Nobody's being indifferent about, about anything. Everyone is doing something about what they hear, okay? And as we look at these responses together, I think it'll challenge us, and I hope that it challenges us to do some responding of our own. This is God's word. I want to ask the Lord for help. I need it this morning, and I think we all do. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. I pray that you would help us to uh, see Christ in these pages, that you would help us to see who you are truly, both just and holy and compassionate and merciful, and that those are not opposite things. Those find their true nature in you because that is who you are. We pray this morning that you would help us to respond to both by looking to Jesus and trusting him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Spam texts, junk emails, TV ads, 
right? And, and, and like the, the, the extra flavor right now is all the political things that we see, right? Um, we are daily bombarded with messages, daily bombarded with all kinds of messages about all kinds of things, and every message that comes to us is trying to draw us in, trying to get us to respond in some way, shape, or form and direct us in, into how it wants us to, to behave, right? Most of the time, these messages become white noise to us that we immediately ignore or delete because they're unimportant to us. But here's the thing. I think sometimes we are prone to treat God's word the same way. I know I am, and I don't think I'm the only one, especially when it confronts us and exposes our sin. We don't like that, do we? I can see people's heads shaking, yeah. You, like, you're like me. You immediately get defensive, right? You start, you start justifying your actions and your behaviors. You start pointing out the other person's weaknesses and sins and failures. You might even start arguing with God because you know better than he does, right? But, but this is the reality. God's word is not just something we open on Sundays together. This is a message that we need every single day of our lives. Every single day of our lives. And yet when we read or we hear something that we don't like in it, it's really easy for us to dismiss it as white noise, as irrelevant to our lives, and, and then we just go on doing what we want to do instead. Haven't we seen this example through Jonah? I mean, the, the, the actual word of the Lord, came, like, like audible voice of God comes to Jonah and says, I need you to do this. I want you to do this. And Jonah's like, nah, I'm out. And yet this morning, we're going to be surprised by a response that is unexpected, and that's the whole point, that a group of pagan Gentiles, Ninevites, enemies of the people of God and God himself actually listen to what God says and they respond the way God wants them to. And I think that that's going to help us understand this point. When God gives us his message, we need to see that he's giving us his grace. And in that grace, he's showing us then how to freely live. When God gives us his message, he's giving us his grace, and, and he's showing us then how to freely live in that grace. We're going to start with Jonah's response to God here this morning. Let's read verse 1 together, chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now, we can just like go right past that, but we, we can't. We, we need to see here how important it is What's happening in this, this incredible amount of grace in those words right there? The word of God came to Jonah a second time. This is incredible grace that God is showing to Jonah. When the word of the Lord came to Jonah the first time, what did he do? He ignored it and he ran away. The word of the Lord, whenever it comes to anyone, is grace. The fact that it came to Jonah the first time is an act of grace. Because God is not obligated to make himself or his will known to anyone. He's God. He doesn't owe us anything, right? He does whatever he pleases. The Psalms say that. And it pleased him to give Jonah an assignment in chapter 1. But how did Jonah respond then? 
when the Lord, uh, the word of the Lord came the first time. He ran, he ignored, he thought he knew better, right? So we could ask then, does Jonah even deserve to have the word of the Lord come to him a second time? Did he deserve to have it come to him the first time? The answer is no. So then, by running from God, clearly he doesn't deserve to have it come the second time. But the God who does whatever he pleases is pleased to give people a second chance and a third chance and a hundredth chance and a ten billionth chance. If you have breath in your lungs, this is the God you want. This is the God you need. You need the God who is patient, slow to anger, steadfast in love, merciful and gracious, the God of second chances. Let's keep reading. Verses two through four. Get up. This is his message to Jonah. Get up. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and he went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now, this is almost a word-for-word a reproduction of what God said in chapter 1, verse 2. Get up and go could be translated here, go immediately. Same thing, it could have been uh, translated in chapter 1. So the urgency of the mission hasn't changed. The urgency of the, of the message hasn't changed, right? Even though Jonah has delayed the mission, the urgency has not changed. In chapter 1, God told Jonah, preach against Nineveh, because their evil has come up before me. Here he tells Jonah, preach what? The message that I tell you. The message hasn't changed. Verse four makes it clear that Jonah is uh, preaching against Nineveh. Did I read verse four? Well, let's just read it so you know what I'm talking about. Jonah, I just stopped at the paragraph there. Jonah got up, verse three. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now, Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. There, now you know what I'm talking about. Preach against it, right? I would say that's preaching against it. The message has not changed. What has changed, though, is Jonah's response to God's command. Chapter one, he got up and he ran. He fleed from the Lord's presence He fleed to Tarshish instead of going to Nineveh. This time, it says that he got up and he went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. This is a good reminder that when God calls us to obey him and we choose to disobey him, God does not change his mind about what he has said, about what he has called us to do, and then let us off the hook. Fish pun intended, okay? No, God pursues us. He pursues us with sovereign and uncomfortable grace so that we change our minds about what he's called us to do and we obey. He calls us to obedience, obedience that's produced by faith, trusting in him that his word is true and good and his ways are wise. Are you resisting God? Are you running away from him in an area that he's calling you to obey him in? Can I just answer that for all of us? It's yes. In some way, shape, or form, we're all doing this. Sometimes we do it more grievously than other times. But this is what God does for us. He continues to draw us, continues to expose in us these inconsistencies in our lives, these sins, these weaknesses, these failures, and says, I have a better way. Come follow me. 
But maybe there's a particular way that is especially pertinent to you right now. And if that's so, then, then I think it's important that you understand that God is not going to change his mind about what he's called you to do. He's not going to change his mind about what he's said to you, and he's way more patient than you are. He's just, he's way more patient than you are. In his grace, God is perfectly willing to let you be uncomfortable, even miserable, even miserable in your disobedience for as long as it takes until you change your mind because you've understood that he's not going to change his. And you begin to walk in obedience to him in that area. But he doesn't call any of us to begrudging obedience. That's a terrible way to live. That's a joyless way to live. That's actually a false way to live. If we think God is just some slave driver that doesn't love the people that he masters, and we just obey out of some hope that, that maybe then that will get us in his good graces, we don't understand what's going on in Scripture here. The gospel says something very different. God teaches us that he loves us and he calls us to a way that is right and good because that is the best way. And we can obey freely and joyfully when we see God's grace at work in us and we can do what he's called us to do. Bible scholars and teachers have different ideas on how to interpret this description of Nineveh in, chapter, in uh, verse 3. Some think that the description here is referring to the size of Nineveh. If that's the case, then a three-day walk would make this a pretty large city, about 55 to 60 miles long, okay? Uh, given the, the, that uh, when you, uh, a day's walk would cover about 18 to 20 miles back then. Archaeological evidence, though, shows that Nineveh was only about a mile in diameter at its widest part. And so if the size of Nineveh is being described here, then chances are this three-day walk is uh, referring to not only the city of Nineveh proper, but also the greater surrounding region uh, of Nineveh. So in chapter 4, God says that there are uh, more than 120,000 people in Nineveh. So whether or not he's, uh, whether he's referring only to the city proper or to the surrounding region, either way, what we can draw from this is that he has been, uh, 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 Jonah has been given this monumental task of taking this message to all these people, right? To preach God's message against all of them. Other scholars and teachers think that the description is referring to uh, not the size of Nineveh, but the significance of Nineveh. The phrase extremely great city here in verse three can also be translated from the Hebrew to say that Nineveh was a great city to God. Chapter one makes it clear that God sees the immense evil of the people there, so it can't be great in the sense of admirable or commendable by God or to God, but it could, could be said that Nineveh is important to God. Why? Because God is gonna use it to teach Jonah a lesson about God's heart for the nations and his grace toward undeserving sinners. It's important. Whether you want it to be about size or significance or both, whatever's being emphasized here, what's not in question is Nineveh's reputation and the risk that Jonah is taking by going there to preach the message that God gave him to preach. Nineveh was notorious for its idolatry, its immorality, and its violence. It was not uncommon for the leaders of Nineveh to cut off the fingers and the lips and the noses of anyone who opposed them, okay? I don't think we have any, uh, anybody in Minunk like that, but 
We'll find out, I guess. I don't know why I said that. I hope some, I, listen, I hope you all are just praying for me right now. Imagine Jonah, okay, an outsider, an enemy of, of these people. They don't know it yet. He didn't tell them that he was a prophet from God like he, like, uh, or that he worships this God. He's an outsider. He's also covered in dried fish vomit, don't forget, right? And then he begins his journey through the city, and he just proclaims this message. Hey, in 40 days, Nineveh will be de- demolished. I'm like, Jonah, I hope you're not too attached to your fingers and ears and lips, right? That was another pun. I should just quit. I, I just don't even know. I hope you see that the word is working in me too. I'm not a perfect person. I have never claimed to be. The message is just seven words long here in, in the English translation. Seven words. In the Hebrew text, it's five. Shortest message that anybody's ever preached. Now, that could literally be all that Jonah said, or it could be presented here as a summary of a longer sermon. The text just doesn't clarify for us one way or the other. Either way, though, it is clear here, what is clear here is the warning that Nineveh is given. They're heading for what? Destruction. 40 days, they'll be demolished, right? In the Hebrew text, the word that that gets translated here as demolished is the same word that's used to describe what happened back uh, in Genesis 19 to Sodom and Gomorrah. Same word. They were leveled, fire and brimstone, sulfur, smoke, rising, unending smoke. It literally means, this word literally means to be overthrown or destroyed. But the same Hebrew word can also be translated as transformed or changed. And since the book of Jonah is full of satirical irony, I think it's entirely possible that both meanings are being employed here. Because when the Ninevites hear this threat of, of being overthrown, of being destroyed, something completely unexpected happens to them, their hearts are transformed and begin to change. Look at verse 5 through 9. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and they dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. When word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And then he issued a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal or herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Jonah's on day one. He hasn't even reached the heart of the city yet in his travels. And already this message that he has preached is reaching the hearts of the people way ahead of him. Because of God's grace and his mercy. Notice their response in verse 5. It says that the people of Nineveh believed God. 
Now, that is a massive statement because if the only message that they heard was what Jonah gave them here in verse 4, let's just, let's just take a survey here real quick of what he left out. He didn't tell them about God. He didn't actually tell them about their evil that came up before the Lord. He didn't tell them how to repent or that they needed to repent. He gave them none of that information, and yet the Ninevites still believed God in spite of all of that. If that is, in fact, the message that he gave them, that short message, it means that they believed God even in spite of the fact that Jonah didn't give them any reason or any way to respond. They still responded. Remember how Jonah finished his prayer of thanksgiving in chapter 2? He said, salvation belongs to whom? The Lord, right? And what we see here is that God can take even a five-word message and use it to transform the hearts of those who hear it. Church, this should give us great hope as those who've been commissioned to take God's message of the gospel to an unbelieving and increasingly hostile world. Listen, we don't ever want to purposefully, purposefully leave something out, Right? Any important detail of the gospel, if you've been here for any stretch of time, you know that this is something we, we want to rehearse so that we, not so that it's a, a, some packaged message that becomes white noise for people, like, we're, like it's a sales pitch, but so that we can know that we know that we know the truth of what God has told us in his word, this glorious gospel that he has rescued and redeemed sinners through Jesus Christ. We don't want to leave anything out. But if we do, if you fumble your words like I have very clearly done this morning, if you leave something out, if you forget where you're going and what you've said already, isn't it great to know that God can still use whatever has come out of your mouth to transform those who hear it? Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord, not to you and not to me. Can we all just breathe a sigh of relief? We're called to, to proclaim this message, and when we do it imperfectly, somehow by God's grace and, and power, he still brings sinners to himself. But let's just say that Jonah actually did tell them more than what we read in verse 4. If that's true, then these words are a summary of the message that God told Jonah to preach. And then that means that the message emphasized, the, the biggest emphasis of the message was the threat of judgment against the Ninevites uh, because of their evil and their sin. And that would make sense then because God told Jonah to preach against them back in chapter one. Now, maybe you don't like to, to think or talk about God's judgment. Maybe you're worried that if you bring that up in a conversation that, with an unbeliever, that, that, that that will become white noise, that it'll turn them off to anything else that you have to say and they'll reject God instead of running to him. But we need to understand this, okay? They're already running from him. And if you have come to Christ, you know this because you were running from him. And he pursued you with his truth and love and grace. They're already running from him. They're already rejecting God. That is what sin makes us do. That's what sin makes us do. Our sin makes us hate God and worship ourselves. Our sin makes us love what God hates and hate what God loves. Our sin makes us want to be God. And we set ourselves up in opposition to God when we want to be God. 
And when we want to be God and we oppose God, then what does that make us? It makes us enemies of God. And the Bible is very clear that all of God's enemies deserve God's wrath. His judgment. His righteous and eternal wrath. That is what we deserve. This is the bad news of the good news. Again, it's not opposite things. These go together. This is the bad news of the good news. Unless we see our own wickedness and God's righteousness, we'll never understand our need for his grace. Unless we see that our sin is evil and unjust and God's wrath is good and just, we'll never cry out to him for mercy. Jesus' death on the cross is at the core of the gospel message. So then we have to ask, why did he die, right? Why did he die? Yeah, he died at the hands of wicked men, but the Bible makes it clear over and over and over again that he died under the righteous wrath of God the Father. The Bible also makes it clear that Jesus is sinless because he is God. As a human being, as the son of God, he lived as a human being, came to this earth, put on flesh, and he lived in perfect obedience to God the Father. So if he's totally innocent, why would Jesus need to die under the wrath of God? Right? If the, father, uh, 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 if the father loves the son, why, why does the son die? Why, if he's sinless? The Bible also makes this, the, the answer to this question clear. Jesus died in the place of sinners in order to remove our guilt and reconcile us to God. The message of the gospel takes the message of Jonah and develops it fully in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He does this himself. Is this is the message that God's love, or God loves his enemies and pours out his sovereign grace on undeserving sinners of all kinds. Jesus refers back to Jonah in the Gospels. He talks about this in Matthew 12, verses 39 through 41. After some unbelieving scribes and Pharisees demanded that Jesus show them a sign that he was the Messiah that they were waiting for, this king of the Jews that they wanted to see, he answered them this way. He said, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. But no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Hear this. Ready? The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. After three days and three nights, Jesus rose from the dead to prove his own innocence and to show that his death on the cross was sufficient to purchase forgiveness for and to remove guilt from all who trust in him. But notice the warning that he gave to the unbelieving scribes and Pharisees here. He said, hey, judgment is coming, right? And the Ninevites who repented at Jonah's preaching will condemn you because you refuse to trust in the one who's greater than Jonah. Jesus didn't shy away from talking about judgment, and we can't either. We shouldn't. As followers of Jesus, God's righteous judgment is what we have been rescued from. Yes, we've been rescued from our sin, ourselves, from death, from Satan, but the thing we needed to be rescued from, perhaps the most, because of all those things, is this very good and holy righteous wrath of God. The punishment that we deserved was put on him. And he willingly took it. 
We've been rescued from this wrath through Christ's righteous life, his sacrificial death, and his vindicating resurrection. The resurrection didn't just vindicate Jesus. It now vindicates us. Isn't that incredible? It's incredible. If we hadn't seen that our own efforts of obedience to God could never make up for our sin, like the song we sang, right? There's, there's, there's no right that can redeem us. It's finished. He's done it, right? If we hadn't seen that our own efforts could never make up for our sin or remove God's judgment from us, we wouldn't have seen our need for Christ's obedience and his sin-atoning, judgment-removing work on the cross. God told Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. That message clearly included the threat of God's judgment against the Ninevites because of their sin against him. The Bible that we hold in our hands, that we read from every Sunday, and and Lord willing, that you're in every day of the week, this is the message that God has told us. And all throughout, it speaks of his righteous judgment against unrighteous sinners. It doesn't mince words about that. God's message confronts us with real and eternal truths that cannot be overlooked or ignored as white noise because these real and eternal truths are, are those things that people are, uh, uh, or, excuse me, because it's through the, that real and eternal truth, through this threat of judgment, that people are able to recognize and respond to God's incredible grace. If we don't know what we need to be rescued from, we won't seek rescue. It's just that simple. It can be easy for us to point the finger at Jonah and draw attention to his lack of love for the Ninevites here because all he wanted to do was tell them about the wrath that they were under. But I think it's worth asking how much we truly love someone if we are unwilling to tell them the truth about the wrath that they are under. What else can help people understand their need for repentance? Maybe, maybe our reason for withholding that information actually isn't so different than Jonah's. Praise God that salvation belongs to him and his motives went out over our own. When we began the book of Jonah, we saw that it's a book full of satirical irony. That means that it contains all these humorously exaggerated stereotypes, these extreme circumstances that are designed to communicate some very profound and important points. The repentance of the Ninevites is an example of this. Have you ever heard a five-word sermon leading to the repentance of an entire city before? That's like every pastor's dream, right? Every preacher's dream. This is a revival of monumental proportions, and when you consider that it's the Ninevites of all people who are turning to the Lord in faith, it only serves then to emphasize how actually incredible all of this is that God can open the hearts of evil people and enable them to swallow their pride, hear me, is a much bigger miracle than God opening the mouth of a huge fish and enabling it to swallow a prophet. Incredible miracle. The repentance of the Ninevites was monumental in its scope. Everyone repented from the greatest of them to the least. Even the animals were dressed in sackcloth. Now, to be clear, animals have no need to repent. They're not made in the image of God as humans are. They're not sinful creatures. And yet, this picture here 
is emphasizing with satirical irony the total obedience, complete obedience of the Ninevites, the pagan Ninevites, the ones who had no room for God, pitting that against the half-hearted obedience of Jonah to whom the word of the Lord came, the prophet. The repentance of the Ninevites was also monumental in its speed. Verse five says, then the people of Nineveh believed God. In the Hebrew text, that word believe is the very first word of that sentence. They just wanna get it out there as fast as possible because it reveals the urgency and the immediacy of the Ninevites' response to the message they heard. These people were eager to turn to the Lord. And the repentance of the Ninevites was monumental in its statement then to the Israelite readers of the book. It doesn't just highlight Jonah's faults. This zealous repentance and obedience of the pagan Ninevites was an indictment against Israel for its constant lack of repentance and obedience to God. This is the history of God's people. The description of the Ninevites here stands in sharp contrast to the description of the Israelites in 2 Kings 17, 13 and 14. Here's what it says. Still... The Lord warned Israel and Judah through every prophet, every prophet and every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commands and statutes according to the whole law I commanded about your ancestors and sent to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen. Instead, they became obstinate like their ancestors who did not believe, did not believe the Lord their God. That's, that's crazy irony. They did not believe the Lord their God. Then the Ninevites believed God, right? Verse five here echoes Genesis fifteen six. Abraham believed the Lord and, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The Ninevites who believed God and who turned from their evil ways are acting more like children of Abraham than the obstinate people of Israel. Where? But the Israelites aren't the only ones that need to pay attention to this, right? This is something that we need to hear. This is something that we need to pay attention to as people of God and the children of Abraham by faith. It's been credited to us as righteousness as well when we believe God. One thing that's clear from these verses is that repentance is a characteristic marker of true faith. The king of Nineveh won't trade his throne for ashes and his royal robe for sackcloth unless he's come to believe that God himself is the true king. Is there repentance in your life that marks your belief in Jesus as the true king? Or are you still on the throne? It's also clear from these verses that even though repentance is something that takes place internally, it's a heart change, right? If it is true repentance, then it will show itself in external ways. The people won't dress in sackcloth and they won't fast if they are, are, are not truly repentant. They have no reason to otherwise, right? Nor do they have any reason then to call out earnestly to God and to turn from their evil ways and their wrongdoing. That's actually what repentance is. It's a turning away from our wrongdoing, from our sin and turning toward God in faith. If the Ninevites aren't truly repentant, then they would have every reason to ignore God and cut off Jonah's fingers and lips and nose in response to his message. Are there outward ways that your inward repentance is showing itself in your life? 
It's also clear from these verses that even when repentance is a corporate response, that necessitates the response of every individual. In in verse 8, the king's decree is that everyone, everyone, all people, everyone must call out earnestly to God and each, each one. Every individual must turn from his evil way and his, from his wrongdoing. Everybody needs to repent, and each person needs to repent. The people can't rely on the king's repentance, and he can't rely on the people's repentance. They all need to repent individually, and so do we. Have you personally turned from your evil ways and from your wrongdoing, or are you relying on someone else's repentance? Have you believed God's message and responded to him in faith? The king's words here in verse 9 are words of hope. He's hopeful that God will see the Ninevites turning from their evil ways and that God, in response, would, would turn, might turn from his burning anger so that they will not perish. But you need to know that what the Ninevite king is hopeful for, you can be certain of. John 3.16 gives us this great summary, real short, again, of the gospel message. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who, what, believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Belief in Jesus is expressed through repentance. It's turning from your sin. It's depending on Jesus for forgiveness. It's dependence upon Christ that keeps us from perishing, from perishing. There's the threat of judgment right there. Apart from Christ, we're doomed to perish We have to ask, under what? Under the righteous wrath of God. John 3.18 puts it this way, and this is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. Anyone who believes in him, being the son of God, Jesus, is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. At the cross, Jesus turned God's burning anger his righteous wrath away from sinners and onto himself so that any sinner who puts their trust in Jesus will not perish under the wrath of God, but will have everlasting life, eternal life. Listen, you can have that certainty of eternal life this morning if you repent, if you turn from your wicked ways and your wrongdoing. Literally, the word there is is violence in your hands. I need to recognize that my hands, the violence, my wrongdoing is what nailed Jesus to the cross. I did violence to Christ. Oh, but he pursues us in his grace, in his love and mercy. You can have eternal life this morning, so why not then repent? Why not turn from the things that don't get you anywhere and actually keep you under judgment and turn to the one who rescues you uh, you from it? So far, we've seen how people have responded to God in this scene, but it finishes by showing us God's response to the repentance of the Ninevites. Verse 10, God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways, and so God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. Aren't those glorious words? Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he might lie or a son of man that he might change his mind. Does he speak and not act or promise and not fulfill Now, at first glance here, it might seem like God changed his mind, right? Because it looks like that he promised to destroy Nineveh in verse 4, like uh, no other conditions there. And now he's not fulfilling that promise. But we need to understand the difference between God changing his mind, which he never does, 
never does, and God leaving room for repentance, which he does all the time. When God threatened the Ninevites with disaster through Jonah's short message in verse 4, the implied message was that if they changed their minds, that's what repentance is. It's turning. If they repented, then God would relent from demolishing them, from letting them perish, and that's exactly what happened. And that's consistent with the word that God spoke later to the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 18, 7 and 8. At one moment I might announce concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will uproot, tear down, or destroy it. However, if that nation about which I have made the announcement turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the disaster that I had planned to do it. God doesn't change his mind, but he does leave room for repentance so that we might change ours. Isn't that grace? Praise God for that grace. And that grace ultimately comes to us through grace incarnate, Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, who bore the wrath for us so that we might live for God freely, fully. This is the message of the gospel. It's God's message to us. Yes, it will confront you and me in our sin and expose those things in us that are not of God, but that's always for our good, always for our good. When God gives us his message, he's giving us his grace and showing us then how to live freely in it. So let's not treat this like white noise. You can, listen, you can let all the things that I have said go in one ear and out the other, but you cannot read this chapter and ignore it. Why not change our minds together and believe this God who has changed our hearts and let's walk together in this grace-fueled obedience to the God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Amen. Father, we love you. Lord, I thank you that you take imperfect people and you put your perfect word in our mouths and you work it into our hearts also that we can see Jesus better and help others see him. I pray this morning that that was accomplished. I pray that your word and your spirit would do the work, penetrate our hearts, draw us into greater obedience to you, that we don't ignore you, but we run to you because that is where life is found, nowhere else. Father, we thank you for your, for your word, and we, we thank you that no matter where we turn to it, we see your grace, and we see that most clearly and fully in Jesus himself, and we thank you that you have given us this son, that we might be called children of God when we believe in him. We thank you, pray all these things in his name, for his glory, amen.